Raise your hand if you have ever played Pictionary. Pictionary is a little bit of a play on words. Uh, it's combined the word picture and dictionary. The goal of the game is that uh, you are to draw a uh, card that has a particular word on it. I'm going to do this live just like I pretended I planned it. And if there's a spot here for all the person, place, uh, animal. You can maybe have to draw an object. You might have to do an action. Uh, it might be a difficult word, or it could be something that everyone gets to play, your team and the opposing team. So you would take a card from here, front or back. I don't remember. Mark, do you remember? You kind of memorized every board game rule on the planet, past, present, and future. So do you remember? Draw from the front or back. From the front. I'm going to draw from the front, and here's what I have to draw. One of my options would be to draw Pluto, the moon, the, or the planet, or whatever it's classified as these days. I don't know if it's a planet anymore or whether it is, uh, whether it got voted out again or what happened. You, maybe you're drawing Pluto the Disney dog, um, trademark patent pending. And, uh, or another word you might have to draw is a faucet. That may be a little bit easier to draw a sink faucet or something like that. How would you draw import? Import. How would you draw that? That gets a little difficult, isn't it? And that's why it's under the, the difficult category. And so what you would do is you would, on your team, someone would be the drawer for that round. And then if you got the guess right before the time uh, expired then you would get to roll the dice and you would move your piece around the board and of course the first one to finish kind of wins the game. Pictionary, one of my favorites when I was growing up. As, as a matter of fact, uh, we had some, in our youth group uh, that I was a part of, we had some hilarious, embarrassing, side-splitting moments when it came to some of the guesses that people had with some of these words. I would love to tell you stories about them, but to be honest, they're they're kind of so embarrassing. You might have uh, one of those moments where you start wondering, why did we hire this man as our pastor if we knew that was what he did in the past? So this, that's one of those stories I'm not going to tell when it comes to Pictionary. Some of these words are hard to describe, to define, let alone draw. So imagine the first thing we're going to talk about in our 40 Days of Purpose is God. He's hard to define, let alone draw. And if you were asked, tell me about God, you may start to describe things like his omniscience, that he knows all things, that he's omnipresent, he's in all places at all times. There's no place in the heavens above, in the earth below, in the depths of the sea that God is not there. Or maybe you'd start to describe his omnipresence, his omnipresence, uh, being that he's everywhere, maybe, uh, sorry, I've already mentioned that. Maybe you start to describe his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. You start to describe that. Maybe you'd say, you'd start to describe Jesus. But even describing Jesus over the years has had challenges because, let's face it, all of the pictures that we grew up with in church and a lot of the pictures that we see and images that we get in our mind of Jesus today is a white Anglo-Saxon American guy with long hair, right? It's not exactly the image of a Middle Eastern man 
who had, as scripture says, no form or comeliness, no attractive qualities physically that we should desire him. That's not what we think of when we think of Jesus. So maybe you go to something like the Trinity and you say, I'd like to, I'll describe God by describing the Trinity. He is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, sometimes that just makes the picture a little bit more unclear rather than actually clearing it up. That needs its own set of definitions. So how do we begin to understand God as we begin to seek God? How do we begin to encounter God during these 40 days of purpose as we begin to seek Him together? I think there is one concept of God that is helpful to gain a glimpse, to get a glimpse of him. There's one concept, there's one piece of his nature, a characteristic of God that is foundational and fundamental to not only understanding who he is, but also how he acts in the world. And that is his holiness. And to understand God's holiness, we find one of the clearest pictures of God's holiness, not just on display, but in action, in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, turn with me in them to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to spend our time together there as we consider the holiness of God and the question that this text raises. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, the following verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, a, a kind of angel, each with six wings, not the picture of angels that we normally have when we think of angels. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I want to give thanks uh, to uh, Steve uh, Gusendorf, uh, our Alliance Director of Equipping You. Uh, Equipping You used to be called the Ministerial Study Program. Uh, the Ministerial Study Program is a way for people who have not had formal Bible college training or seminary training to enter into ministry in, with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And they, he has taken that program and put a, a large portion of it online and is starting to expand it beyond the needs of the ministerial study program so that people who want to be engaged with Alliance work all around the world can get the training and resources that they need. Excellent resource. He's written a lot of this sermon guide for today. So I want to give him uh, thanks for that. And he notes that there are really three things that we see about God's holiness here. And first of all, he says that we see his holiness in, we see God's holiness displayed in power in this passage. And that's true. And he says that Isaiah's vision of God showed that God was supreme and without 
equal. He is supremely powerful and without rival. And we see this in the way that the angels talk about God, the seraphim, and the way that, well, the world responds to their declaration. First of all, these angels have six wings, not the picture of angels that we normally have, but they're talking to each other. And they're saying to each other, it's God. These amazing beings, these amazing creatures are not saying, look at me, look at my accomplishments, look what I can do. They are pointing our attention to the God on the throne. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they declare that, what happens? The building shakes. Now I tell you, when I tell my wife that I love her, maybe her knees shake. Most of the time she rolls her eyes and says, what do you want? <laughs> I say, I love you, honey. And she goes, yeah, but what do you want me to do? <laughs> Imagine declaring the truth about someone, declaring a fact about someone, congratulations, you graduated. Congratulations on your promotion. Congratulations on that raise. Congratulations on the new member of your family. And the whole room shakes in response to that truth. That is absolute power on display. That is glory on display. And if you've ever been to a high hill or a mountain and looked over a valley or you've ever been to the ocean side and looked out at the sea that just seems unending if you've ever been in a forest where you can just see the majestic nature of everything that has grown you have seen a glimpse of God's glory but it's not just his power that's on display. God's holiness is shown not just in his power, but it's shown in his personification. What do, I mean, what do I mean by that? Here in this text, God is displayed as a king, seated on a throne, which is where kings sit. And his train to his robe fills the temple. What a, what a majestic scene that just the presence and the personification of God as king fills the entire place. His whole presence says, I am not only king, I am the king of kings. Isaiah's vision of God revealed God in regal dress, seated on a throne above all other thrones. And that means there is no king or authority that sits above God. His majesty is undiluted. He is holy because he sits above all other authority. And remember, this is at a time of political upheaval. Because Isaiah is in the temple at a time when the king had died. Who would be the next king? Would there be peace? Would there be turmoil? Would there be civil unrest? Would they be a good leader? Would they be a bad leader? And at that moment, Isaiah comes face to face with the king of kings. His holiness is displayed in his power. It's displayed in his personification. But his holiness is displayed in his praise. 
these angels declaring, reminding each other that God is holy, holy, holy. And of course, you know that if you grew up in church, that repetition of God's holiness is saved for the word holy alone. However, I don't think that's strictly the emphasis. I think it's trying to get us to wrestle with the fact that this is critical and this is important to the fundamental nature of who God is. If you want your son or your daughter as they're growing up to do something, what do you do? You tell them, you tell them, and you tell them again. You tell them the important things. You remind them, you remind them, you remind them until they say, stop telling us this. And yet, God's holiness is displayed that these seraphim surrounding the throne were just enthralled to tell each other over, over, over again that God is holy, holy, holy. The constant praise of God around the throne, and this is in the temple, so this is a piece of heaven on earth. The constant praise of God is unique in the Bible. Unlike any other being, in any other religion, God is always worthy and is receiving continual praise and worship in heaven. And Isaiah comes face to face with that holiness, with God's power, with his kingliness, with his personification, and with his praise. And how does he respond? The only way he can. We read in verse 5 that Isaiah says, Woe to me. Ruin to me. I am ruined, in other words. I, I am ruined, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Two things are happening to Isaiah here. He comes into the presence of God and he becomes aware of not only who God is in his holiness, he becomes aware of who he is in his unholiness. And that happens when you walk into a room where there is all sorts of natural light right? The only way to clean is to turn on lights. The only way to build, the only way to construct, the only way to make sure the paint job is right, the only way to make sure that the work is done correctly is to shine a light on it and double check everything and look at all of the things and make sure because if it's not, if it's too dim, then it looks fine. It looks fine in the dark. It looks normal, but then it comes into the light and you think, oh no, look at that. I mean, that's why we don't let our children get dressed in the dark. <laughs> because they'll just find anything and nothing will match. We turn on lights because we need to see and make sure that we are presentable. Isaiah comes into the blinding light of God's holiness. And he becomes self-aware of his own inadequacy, of his own unholiness. And that fills him with fear. That self-awareness drives him to fear. Because in the presence of God, Isaiah feared what would become of him. 
because of God's unique status. If we were to allow unholiness to exist with holiness, it would be like saying, here's a white wall, perfectly pristine white, painted glossy white, no imperfections at all, except for this one black mark right dead center. If you looked at that wall, what would you see? The one black dot dead center. That's all you could see. That's all you can notice. That's all you can view. And so the presence of perfection cannot exist with the presence of imperfection. The presence of holiness cannot commune with unholiness. And Isaiah is afraid because this is a holy king. This is a holy God. And what do kings get to do? What do kings do? Whatever they want. <laughs> they rule however they want, right? For good or for bad, for your benefit, for, your, uh, uh, for lack of benefit, they just take what they want and they do what they want and they can do that because they are king. And here is the king of kings in perfect holiness. What is it that Isaiah can do? What is it that God will do? He realizes he is ruined. God in his perfect holiness cannot allow unholiness to remain in his presence because then he is no longer holy. And he is right in every way to guard, to build up that glory, to declare his glory because there is nothing greater, there is nothing better. There is nothing greater than his holiness, nothing better than, this, than his holiness. And God does something that if you look through history, no king has ever done. We read in verse 6 how God responds to Isaiah's unholiness in his holy presence. In verse 6 we read that, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. How did a holy God respond to his unholy creation in his presence? He sent an intermediary. An angel came with a tool of mediation touched his lips, and that's all it did. He didn't have to eat the burning coal. It just touched his lips, and that was enough. And the, the angel, the seraphim, declared, your guilt is taken away. This has touched your lips, therefore, your guilt, gone. And your sin, atoned for, paid for, it is compensated. It's not ignored. It's not swept under the rug. It is paid for in full. The holy God sends an intermediary to help his unholy creation. And he redeemed his unholy creation by sharing an aspect of his holiness. Atonement. And this is mind-blowing because it is a beautiful picture of what Jesus offers to us. When we realize who God is, 
in his holiness, that he is the perfect king of kings. He has all power. He deserves all praise, and we have failed in giving him that recognition and honor. God doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't reject us. He redeems us in Jesus Christ because what Isaiah is experiencing is a sense of foreshadowing of what Jesus would accomplish for each and every one of us when we needed rescuing, when we needed redemption and didn't deserve it, Jesus came. Because God sent his son, Jesus, to be an intermediary between himself and his sinful creation. And God redeems us through the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we receive that with simple faith. Not a eat this burning coal kind of faith. But here, take, receive, believe. And be atoned for. Your sins are atoned. And that's not what we expect holiness to do, right? That's not what we expect a king to do who has been wronged by his people. But that's the great thing about God's holiness. God's holiness is not just self-centered. God's holiness is so perfect that it is also loving. It is perfect love at the same time. And when those two come together, two sides of the same coin, we see mercy in action. Isaiah received mercy when the coal touched his lips. And you and I receive mercy when we Surrender our lives to Jesus. Holiness and love combine to mercy. And that's amazing because mercy is not something a king has to do. A king can do whatever he wants, right? That means that mercy is not something God has to do. But if a king does whatever he wants, that means that God does whatever he wants. And that means if he's showing mercy, that means he wants to show mercy. He's not forced to show mercy. Well, you know, you know some people. I know your dad. <laughs> you know, he's well-connected in heaven, so therefore you get, to, you, you get a pass on some of these things. It's not like we see today where there's nepotism everywhere. This is God simply saying, part of my nature, part of who I am is that I long to, I want to, I love to show love to my creation. Which explains why there's a creation in the first place. is because God wanted to shower His love on that creation. That holiness drives how He acts. He's not going to push away the consequences of sin. He's not going to ignore them. He's not going to give anyone a pass. But he is going to give anyone repentance if they choose to believe. The fact that mercy isn't something that God has to show, but it's something that God wants to show, is mind-blowing to me. And it should be mind-blowing to us. It should overwhelm us emotionally. Do you remember your first kiss from your future spouse? I don't, and my wife 
yelled at me about that last night when I was sharing the message with her. How can you not remember? But do you remember, if you do remember that, do you remember how that felt? Do you remember that moment, that electric charge that went through your body, that went through your mind as someone who is, you thought, I can't believe they're choosing me. I can't believe this is something for me. I can't believe, you know, in my case, someone way out of my league is, is accepting me. This is fantastic. And you're, you're, just, you're just elated for days. You get that feeling again at the big moments in your marriage. You know, you get to your anniversaries. You get to the 50th anniversary uh, later on in life. And, and you kiss again and all those memories flood back. And you just go... I can't believe this person chose me. That's a glimpse of how it, Isaiah feels about the holiness of God. That the holiness of God did not end up rejecting him or removing him from his presence, but instead ended up redeeming him into relationship. He was not rejected, he was not removed. Instead, he was welcomed into relationship. He was redeemed. He was atoned for. And so, when God says what he says next, Isaiah's excitement is just barely contained in his response. We read uh, in verse 8 that, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. Just like back in the day before cell phones, when that girl or guy you were interested called on your home phone, and your parents shouted out, hey, it's so-and-so on the phone. You threw off whatever you were doing, and you leapt over people, and you pushed them out of the way just to grab the receiver and say, hello, hi, it's you. Isaiah can't contain his excitement as God says, whom shall I send? Me, oh, pick me, pick me, please, I'm here, pick me. He's just so elated and excited. And what he does is amazing because he doesn't know what God is going to ask yet. He doesn't even know what God is asking him to do. He just says, because you have done this for me, whatever you want, I want that. I'm in. I volunteer. I'm the first one. Let me be a part of that. That's his excitement. In other words, Isaiah willingly put himself in a place of service for God that wasn't out of a sense of duty, but out, was out of a sense of worship. Paul would later write, I think in really his magnus opus of Christian life in the book of Romans, and he would say, because of what we have received from God, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And this is real worship. This is true worship. That true worship is more than coming together once a week and singing some songs that make us raise our hands and we kind of enjoy the emotion of that. It culminates that joy, that adulation and respect and praise 
culminates in a life of sacrificial worship that before God says, this is what I'd like you to do, you say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm in. How may I serve? I am yours. A life of living sacrifice out of worship. And that should be our response. In the same way that Isaiah responded, that's the way we should respond to a holy God who has given us so much. When we are cleaned, we should worship. Real worship, sacrificial worship. Offering our lives to a God who had a right to remove us from his presence and instead invited us into a relationship. And when we are brought into a relationship, our worship culminates to in a place of willing service for a holy God. And that response changes everything about us. It's what God is all about, his holiness, his love, indistinguishable from one another. You cannot understand God without understanding how his holiness drives his love and how his love drives his holiness and how he wants to show mercy. And yet, it doesn't seem like that's what he's actually asking Isaiah to do because then he's told what to do. In verse uh, 9, what Isaiah is told to do by God is, he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. For how long, Lord? Uh, Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged and the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. God's desire for us to be atoned Our sin to be made right for us to be in right relationship with him is greater than his desire to bless us with physical things. In Isaiah's day and in the Old Testament, the blessing of God and the promise of God was always associated closely and most directly with the promised land. But people had confused that they were right with God because they were in the land. And you see that even today where people who uh, declare, I am a Christian, I love Jesus because I go to church. I go to church once a week, I pray regularly, but there's no level of life change. And so God is willing to strip away all of the blessings to make all of those things disappear until people get it because this kind of message that we can be atoned for, that there's mercy for our most critical need, can never be confused with other things that we think that we need. And so God works in the world in such a way, His holiness works in the world in such a way, that the hearts of His people have to respond in this way, in worship, in a living surrender and sacrifice of their bodies, because of the mercy they have received. Or they will have their hearts 
increasingly hardened and they will not be able to see, they will not be able to hear, and they will not be able to experience what God is all about. They will make God lesser than what He is. They will reduce Him to a vending machine where God just provides things and gives things and cares for things. And He longs to do all those things in the context of bringing us into relationship with Him. And notice what He's saying. God says that our response, if it's incorrect will actually cause ruin and societal collapse. The problem in our country is not in Washington. The problem in our country is in us. Have we had the right response to a holy God who has not rejected us, but has offered us mercy, relationship, redemption through Jesus Christ. Has that lost its luster to us? Well, that's not because God has changed. That's because we have. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, the only proper response is worship. Worship where we offer our lives to Him out of adoration and thankfulness and praise for the amazing mercy that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. God is looking for those kinds of people. Are we one of them? What is the right way to respond to a holy God? With full sacrificial worship where our lives are surrendered to the work that God has done in us redemptively and the work that God wants to do through us to redeem others to a relationship with him. holiness of God is not something we have to fear because he wants and has prepared a way for us to be right with him.